You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Leviticus chapter 8 is where we will pick up this week. Remember what the entire book of Leviticus is about. Leviticus is to provide a way for sinful man to fellowship with a holy God. And I want you to think about it in this way. I want you to think about Leviticus almost like a three-step process. Now, even putting it that way is, is really um, is something that isn't necessary, but it, it helps us to, to think it through. So step three is the goal, and that goal is fellowship with God. Okay, Fellowship is the goal. Now, in order to reach fellowship in step three, we take a step back to step two. And step two tells us that fellowship with a holy God can only happen if man is also holy or if man is also clean and pure. And since man is naturally unclean because of sin, there must be, step one, an atonement for that sin uh, so that we can be made clean. So step one, atonement, and what Leviticus 1 through 7 told us, is atonement only comes through the shedding of blood, a substitute sacrifice. It only comes through the death of the innocent for the guilty, the clean for the unclean, the unblemished for the blemished. So chapters 1 through 7 dealt with step one, of atonement. And it showed us through the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, how atonement was to be made. The meat offering showed us how even the work of our hands needed to be holy. Our service to God must be holy. The peace offering shows us again the effects of the atonement of sin. Only through atonement of sin can we then have peace with God and enter into his presence. So chapters 8 through 27 are going to cover steps 2 and 3. And I referenced this in last week's message, but I want to bring it out again. So God has provided a way through the five major offerings for man to find forgiveness and atonement for his sin. And that then allows him to move on to step two, which is then to be considered holy or clean by God, and therefore move on to step three, which is to fellowship with God. Now, we read it this morning in Hebrews. Remember, man brings no holiness of our own into God's presence. When we are able to come into God's presence, Hebrews tells us we become partakers of God's holiness. So, But in order to move from... Uh, from here to here to here, atonement must be made, then we can be considered clean, therefore we can come into God's presence. So that is what the offerings were all about. However, the best way for man to be holy or clean is to live a holy and clean life. Holy living is always better than sinful and unclean living just because we have a way of forgiveness. So we're going to run into a lot of things uh, coming up in this second part of Leviticus. And what we'll see is that some of the things that made people unclean were not necessarily sin in and of themselves. But God told them, listen, just because it's not sin, it still makes you unclean. And even though that uncleanness doesn't last for long, maybe it lasts till the end of the day. Maybe it lasts for a week. Maybe it lasts for two weeks. Maybe it lasts for a month. Just because it's a temporary state doesn't mean you should just walk through life 
touching unclean things and saying, oh, it's only going to last for a little bit. No, I'm telling you what is clean and what is unclean so that you can avoid what is unclean. It is always better to live a holy life than to live a sinful life and just seek for forgiveness all the time. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says this, I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. God would rather us live showing mercy to others rather than being cruel to others, knowing that we can just seek for forgiveness later. I would put it this way. God would rather us know how to stay right than how to get right. God would rather us know how to stay right than how to get right. Now, we are not perfect. We will never be without sin as long as we live in this body. And God knows that. Psalm 103.14 says, For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. But that doesn't mean that we should not strive to live holy and separated lives in everything that we do. And just because the law has been completed, and just because we don't have a tabernacle or a temple anymore, and we have goats in the backyard that we're wondering which one we're going to sacrifice today, just because that is not called for anymore doesn't mean that holiness is not needed. The Bible says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So now that the five major offerings have been explained in chapter 1 through 7, if we're going to move on, it's time to consider whom God has chosen to administer those offerings. So chapters 8 through 10 deal specifically with the priests. It's important to remember the common people never entered into God's presence on their own. The priests went in on their behalf. And this is where the book obtained its name, Leviticus, pertaining to the Levites, which of course was the tribe of priests. In order for people to approach God, there had to be a mediator. Now today, there is no more need for a Levitical priesthood. There is no more need for a clerical priesthood. Jesus is now our high priest, and the Bible says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, and, uh, 2 5 and 6. So chapter 8 is going to cover the priest's ordination, the priest's consecration. Chapter 9 is going to tell us about the priest beginning their work. And chapter 10 is going to tell a story of what happens when the priests fail to execute their office in a holy manner. So let's look at chapter 8 first. The whole congregation is gathered together to witness the consecration of Aaron and his sons in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 8. And the key to this whole process is found in verse 5 and repeated throughout the chapter. It says in verse 5, And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. You can see again in verse 9, the, As the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 13, As the Lord commanded Moses. In verse 17, As the Lord commanded Moses. God was making it clear. He had chosen Aaron and his sons. He had chosen the Levites to represent the Israelites to God and God to the Israelites. He's making this choice very clear. After this, the whole consecration was was full of significance and, and symbolic rituals. In verse number six, the priests were washed, showing their need for cleanliness in their office. Verse seven through nine, the high priest was clothed. These uh, clothes are described in more detail in Exodus chapter 28, but each article of clothing pointed to the high priest's job of being the mediator between God and the people of Israel. He had these strange, mysterious stones on on uh, the ephod of his breastplate called the Urim and the Thummim. 
that, uh, that those words stood for lights and perfections. Lights and perfections. We don't know much about them, but it seems to be God's way of answering yes or no questions. Um, they, they're lost to history, uh, but we see them being consulted uh, multiple times throughout Scripture. Uh, it talks about it in Ezra and in Nehemiah as well. You see King Saul trying to consult uh, the Urim and the Thummim and not getting an answer from it. Um, if you're wondering why we don't have that anymore today, well, we have God's word. Uh, we have something much better than the Urim and the Thummim. We have God's complete word with us. Uh, the breastplate that the priest wore had 12 stones, obviously representing the 12 tribes so that he would always remember who he was representing. I think the most important part was the last piece of the clothing that was put on the high priest, and that was the mitre. And on that mitre across a golden plate were the words, holiness to the Lord, uh, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 28, verse 36, a constant reminder of the need for holiness in the high priest's life and in the office which he was called to execute. In chapter uh, 8, verse 10 through 12, the high priest and the tabernacle were anointed. The purpose given in this verses were to sanctify them. And note with me, this is the first mention of Moses entering the tabernacle. Remember, that was the issue at the beginning. Moses could not enter into the tabernacle, but now Moses is able to enter. In verse 13, then the priests were clothed. Uh, in verse 14 through 29, the offerings of the consecration were given. In verse 30, all the priests were anointed again. And then in verse 31 and 32, the priests ate of the sacrifices, a beautiful picture that they were able to have communion with God. And for a week, then, they stayed at the door of the tabernacle. Now, remember, Leviticus is very symbolic, and it's important not just to skip by the details. This whole process would remind the Israelites of their own special calling. Remember what God told them in Exodus chapter 19, I want you to be to me a kingdom of priests. I want you to be a holy nation. So just as the Levites must be holy and consecrated, if they are to be priests to the Israelites, the Israelites would have been reminded, we must also be holy and consecrated if we are to be a kingdom of priests to all nations. And that moves us on to chapter nine. On the eighth day after that week of consecration, it was time for the priests to begin their sacred work. But notice, before the priests can make an atonement for the sins of the nation, they first have to make atonement for themselves. And this was done in a process that's called the priestly dedication. There was a sin offering given in verse 2. There was a burnt offering given in verse 3. There was the peace and meat offering given in verse 4. Notice that there is no trespass offering. This was the teenager's trivia question from this past week. Why was there no trespass offering given at the priestly dedication? Because the trespass offering was specifically for uh, sins and trespasses that were against another person. The sin offering dealt with uh, something between uh, man and God. Um, but a trespass offering was between man, God, and another person. There had to be restitution made because of the damage that the trespass brought. Well, as far as this is concerned, uh, this was between the priests and God alone. There was no need for restitution. Also take note in chapter 9, as the sacrifices are being prepared, now we see Moses and Aaron able to enter into the tabernacle in verse 23. And when they come out from the tabernacle, they bless the people, and God's glory appeared, the Bible says, appeared unto all the people in verse 23, 
And uh, the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. There came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell upon their faces. The people shout for joy and they worship because they are once again able to approach God's presence. Now let's talk about the first nine chapters of Leviticus. Is all this really necessary? All of these details given in Leviticus chapter 1 through 9 and all these things that needed to be done and uh, how the sin offering and the trespass offering seemed so similar. I mean, is it, is it really so necessary to, to approach it so carefully? Is being unholy before God as dangerous as it seems to be? Well, what I would say is just ask Nadab and Abihu which is in chapter 10. Let's go ahead and read these first seven verses. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said unto Aaron and unto Eleazar and unto Ithamar, his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die. And lest wrath come upon all the people, but let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. What did Nadab and Abihu do that was so wrong? Well, there's many possible answers to that question. First of all, you could say they offered strange fire. That word strange means unauthorized or foreign. It could be that they were not authorized to offer at this time. Exodus chapter 30, verse 7 through 9 tells us the only people who should be offering in the way that they were offering was the high priest. It was Aaron. It was not them. They were unauthorized to do what they did. It could be that they used a fire that was not from the brass altar. Maybe they used a fire that they lit on their own. Um, the, the passage isn't clear. Uh, verse 1 implies that they both attempted to enter into the Holy of Holies. The words before the Lord are always used to talk about the mercy seat. What are they doing entering into the Holy of Holies? They have no business there. Verse number 9 and 10 implies that they did all of this while drinking. It seems very possible that the influence of alcohol caused them to, to blur the lines between what was holy and what was unholy. Um, the Bible tells them in verse 9, Do not drink wine, nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee. And look at the reason why in verse 10, that ye may put a difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. Here's the bottom line. Nadab and Abihu presumed to enter God's presence in a way which he commanded them not, the Bible said. For this they were killed, and God's explanation was clear. He said, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. This was such a flagrant violation of God's commandments that Aaron didn't even say anything because he knew God was just in what he did. But even after this heartbreak, the priest's duties must continue. 
And Moses takes time in, in verse 13 and going on to give them a reminder of the process that still needs to be done. Moses understood it, it was going to be difficult for Aaron and, and the remaining sons to focus on what they were supposed to do while grieving. But they just learned that their work was too holy. It was too important to approach without focus. In verse 16 through 20, however, Moses finds that the process of the sin offering was not held to completely. And he questions as to why. Now remember, for the sin offering, a portion was to be burned to the altar to God. A portion was to be carried without the camp and burnt there. And a portion was to be eaten by the priest to represent their communion with God. But it's important to remember that the portion that the priests were supposed to eat of any offering was supposed to be done so with joy and with gladness. And the portion, what Moses finds out, is that the portion that the priests were supposed to eat in the holy place and sprinkle the blood on the altar was instead burned outside of the camp. And Moses says, why have you done this? And Aaron's answer is simply this, because of everything that has befallen me today, I could not have eaten the offering with joy. If I would have eaten it with sadness, would God have accepted it? And the Bible says that in verse number 20, when Moses heard that, he was content. Now with this public example that had been made of Nadab and Abihu, nobody would be questioning right now whether or not it was important to be clean. Everybody would be questioning right now, how do I stay clean so that I don't die also? And chapters 11 through 15 contain example after example of how the children of Israel could become ritually unclean. And this uncleanness could happen in these ways. Chapter 11 says you can become unclean by eating an unclean animal or even by touching a dead animal that you could eat. It talks about the land animals that were clean and unclean, the sea creatures, the fowls of the air, the insects. And following these laws would not only keep them healthy, I mean, we are finding out right now what happens when you eat animals that you probably shouldn't be eating, uh, but also it would keep the people separate from pagan people uh, that they would soon encounter in the land of Canaan. Now, before God continues with this portion of Leviticus, he reminds the Israelites again of the purpose behind it all. Look at chapter 11, verse 44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Chapter 12 talks about childbirth. Every woman after giving birth was immediately pronounced unclean. This was not to say that the lady had sinned in bearing a child. This was to teach that every child was born a sinner. Giving birth, uh, giving birth to a boy made her unclean for 40 days. Giving birth to a girl made her unclean for 80 days. No explanation is given for the difference in length of her purification between a boy and a girl. My opinion is that the Lord is bringing out that he knew ladies were going to be twice as much of a sinner as men were, and that's when the live stream cut in half, right? Are we losing everybody? I'm just kidding. Now listen, uh, if, I, I don't know much about the feminist movement, but if they were just to read through Leviticus chapter 12, I think they would not like what they see. I think they would be upset. But when you read Leviticus chapter 12, all of this was for the benefit of the woman. Um, when she was separated for 40 days, separated for 80 days, think of that, she was considered unclean. 
There was no housework that she could do. There, she had a time to rest. She had a time for recovery. She had rest from her household chores. She had rest from cooking. She had rest from her husband. Uh, she needed this time, and God knew that, so he, he allowed her to, uh, to do that. Chapters 13 through 15 talk about many ways that you can be unclean. It talks about leprosy. It talks about diseases. It talks about contact with bodily fluids, decay, something dead. Now, when you read Leviticus 11 through 15, some may ask at this point, well, then how can anybody be expected to remain clean? How does a person prepare a meal without touching it while it's dead? Are they all using chopsticks? What, I mean, what's wrong with having a child? You can't help it if you catch a disease or contract a disease. What about when you need to bury somebody? Uh, how, how are you supposed to stay clean throughout all this? And the answer to this question comes when we remember a couple of key points. First of all, remember, chapters 11 through 15 are dealing with ritual purity. In other words, these were things that certainly made somebody unclean, but they were not sin in and of themselves. Much of what is dealt with in Leviticus 11 through 15 was just a natural part of life. Another thing to remember was that to be ritually impure was temporary. Uh, even a leper could be declared clean someday. Uh, for childbirth, it was only 40 to 80 days. Touching a dead animal, in many cases, it was just until the evening that you were unclean. To be ritually unclean was not wrong. However, it was wrong to approach God while being ritually unclean. That is what God is trying to bring out here. And altogether, chapters 11 through 15 would promote the clear message to God's people that the holiness of God was to affect every area of their life, even what they ate. Even what they touched just in natural life. They needed to think, what would make me unclean? What would make me impure? Now with this in mind, it would be impossible for a nation the size of Israel to keep track of every sin and every infraction that would cause them to be unclean. Now, of course, God foresaw this scenario, and that's what chapter 16 is about. Chapter 16 talks about the Day of Atonement. This was an annual feast where all of Israel's sin would be addressed as a whole. It was held on the 10th day of the seventh month. It is still celebrated today by Israel. They call it Yom Kippur. It is not on July 10th. It's usually in September or October, but they still celebrate it today. This was the most important day in Israel's calendar. No other passage in Leviticus uh, pictures Christ's atoning work more than chapter 16. And let me show you why. The high priest did all of the work on the day of atonement, it says in verse 17. And that shows us that Christ died alone for you and me. He accomplished the work of redemption all by himself. The high priest didn't wear his usual robes, it says in verse 4. Uh, Exodus 28 verse 2 tells us that the robes were for glory and beauty. Well, he didn't wear those robes on the Day of Atonement because the Bible tells us Jesus put off his robes of glory. He was robed in flesh. He was made in the likeness of men and submitted himself to the death of the cross. One major difference between Aaron, the high priest, and Jesus was that Aaron first had to atone for his own sins in verse 5 and 6. And if you want to see a beautiful comparison between Aaron and Jesus, I want you to mark down to read Hebrews 7, 26, and 27. We don't have time tonight. Hebrews 7, 26, and 27. In fact, I wrote that right next to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 6. After all of this, the high priest also took two goats. And he would cast lots over these goats, 
And one of the goats would be offered for a sin offering to the Lord in verse 9, and the other goat would be deemed the scapegoat. You've heard that word before. Uh, but one of the goats would be deemed the scapegoat in verse 10. First of all, the high priest would offer for his sins and enter into the veil in verse 11 through 14. He would burn incense, sprinkle blood of his offering upon the mercy seat. Then the high priest would come out, offer for the sins of the nation, one of those goats being part of the offering, and then return behind the veil. And it talks about that in verse 15 through 17. So sometimes you hear people say the high priest only entered into the Holy of Holies once per year. It was actually twice per year, but it was on the same day. He would... Um, Again, then uh, atone for the sins of the people, but also look what he would do in verse 16 through 19. He would sprinkle blood upon the holy place, the altar, and the entire tabernacle to make atonement for those things. Um, and it showed us the sins of Israel not only affected their lives, it even affected the tabernacle and the utensils of the tabernacle. Uh, even those things had to be atoned for. This was called reconciling or atoning the tabernacle. And lastly, he would bring forward that scapegoat. Let's go ahead and read verses 20 through 22. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and put uh, and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send them away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Listen to what this preacher wrote about this. Christ is the scapegoat. Insofar as he bears away our sins where they are seen and heard of no more. Nor can I conceive of a more beautiful or impressive figure. There stood the gentle creature, meekly receiving upon its head all the iniquities of the children of Israel. In that I see a picture of the patient Savior as the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The victim is led forth and passes out of sight. In that I behold the bearing away of the load of sin from all of them that believe. The animal is set loose in the wilderness and is seen no more. It is the significant symbol of the penitent sinner's forgiveness. His guilt is borne quite away out of view. It is remembered against him no more. It is clean gone forever. Christ, his scapegoat, has borne it to the land unknown from which it shall return no more. And with this, the atonement of the great day was complete. Isn't that incredible how the Lord did that for us in the act on the cross? Now, certainly the day of atonement was special. But the next chapter, chapter 17, shows us that the lessons taught by the day of atonement needed to be taken with them every single day. On the day of atonement, an animal's lifeblood was shed to atone for the sins of the whole nation. But the next day, and the day after, and every day until the Messiah came, Blood would need to be shed at the tabernacle to Jehovah God to atone for the sins of the individual. So chapter 17 brings out a couple very important things. It reminds them of the importance of the tabernacle. And he says, every single sacrifice, every animal slain by an Israelite or a stranger that comes in, the blood must be brought to the tabernacle. And what did that ensure? It ensured that Jehovah would be worshipped alone. And they brought forward the importance of the tabernacle. Also, it brought forward the importance of blood. Look at uh, Leviticus chapter 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. There was to be no eating of the blood. Blood was to be seen as holy and sacred. Now chapters 18 through 20 follow along the same purpose of chapters 11 through 15 in that they both address the idea of purity. Remember, chapters 11 through 15 address ritual purity, natural aspects of everyday life that could make somebody impure and unclean. Chapters 18 through 20 is going to address moral purity, and this was important to address for two reasons. First of all, Israel has just spent over 400 years in the pagan land of Egypt, surrounded by immoral practices and sinful philosophies. Number two, Israel was about to enter Canaan, another pagan land where they would see even more injustice and sin. So look at verse uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 18. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinance. Ye shall, ye shall do my judgments and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. God is going to take the next three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, to address the sins that they have seen in Egypt and the sins that they will see in Canaan. He ends his address in chapter 20, verse 26, and he says this, basically, I've said all of this to say, ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. In other words, Israel, just because other people are doing it, doesn't make it right and doesn't mean that you can do it also. Remember, if they were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, they had to be different. They had to be different than the citizens of Canaan. Chapters 18 through 20 show how they were to hold the highest standards of morality and purity. They were to honor their parents, keep the Sabbath, even though they would be surrounded by other people who would work and profit on that day. They were to care for the poor and the needy. An example that he gives in chapter 19 through 14, he says, don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Uh, and that should tell us a little something. That, that is a beautiful illustration of gossip. Don't talk about people when they can't hear you. Don't talk about people behind their back. He says, seek justice. Seek fairness in all of your dealings. Love one another. Don't mess around with the occult. Be hospitable to strangers. Remember how you were a stranger in Egypt. In chapters 21 and 22, God then takes the bar that he sets in 18, 19, and 20, and he raises it. And he raises it specifically talking about his priests. The priests were to be the best examples of moral purity in Israel. To fail in this area would, as, as God says in chapter 22 through 32, profane God's holy name among the heathen. He knew people were going to be watching his priests. Again, if you want to see a parallel passage for today in the New Testament, write down to read Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 29. Romans chapter 2, verse 17, and 29, 17 through 29. This is an incredible chapter. Chapter 23. The seven annual feasts were observed. Four of these feasts took place in the spring, and three of them in the fall, separated by a harvest time in the summer, a four-month harvest time in the summer. Let's talk about these in order. 
First of all came the feast of Passover in verse 5. And this would remind them of their deliverance from the death angel by the blood of the lamb. The next was the feast of unleavened bread in verses 6 through 8. This was a week that started with the Passover where no leaven was eaten, and it was a reminder of their exodus from Egypt in haste. The third feast was the Feast of First Fruits in verse 9 through 14. On the first day of the week, they were to gather the first fruits of the sheaves that were growing in their fields and offer them. The next was the Feast of Weeks in verse 15 through 22. This happened 50 days after Passover. And note along with me that with the other offerings that were given on this Feast of Weeks, there was to be a new meat offering in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 23. There was to be a new meat offering given. And notice with me in verse 17, it was to be offered with leaven. Tuck that away. We'll come back to that. Now, this led to a four-month break until the next feast, and during that four months, there was harvest time. The fifth feast was the Feast of Trumpets in verse 25, uh, 23 through 25. The sixth was the Day of Atonement, which we already talked about, but it gives more, a little bit more detail in verse 26 through 32. And then lastly was the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 33 through 44. And this was a reminder of how Israel dwelt in tents in the wilderness. And basically, it was a time to reflect on God's goodness throughout the year. Now, I'm going to poll my audience here. Do you notice any significance about that order of the feast there? And I'm going to read them to you again. Think about these and what they stand for. The Feast of the Passover. What would that remind them of? Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, I'll give another hint, 50 days after Passover, okay? The fifth, the Feast of Trumpets, then the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. What we have in this is a prophetic timeline. This was a prophetic timeline that God had laid out every single year in the Jewish calendar, the Passover. What did that picture in the prophetic timeline? Christ's blood was shed as our Passover lamb, it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. After the Passover came the, the feast of unleavened bread. Doesn't the Bible say that Christ's body was broken and laid in a tomb and yet never saw corruption? The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, and also in Psalms. Then what do we have next? The Feast of First Fruits. And what does the Bible call Christ's resurrection? But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. On the first day of the week is when people were supposed to take the first fruits of their harvest and offer them to the Lord. And on the first day of the week, Christ, the first fruits, was resurrected from the dead. After that, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the Passover. Has anyone gotten that one yet? Pentecost. Yes, very good, Ms. Belia. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends on the church. And remember the new meat offering that would be offered then with leaven. Gentiles were to be included. And what follows after Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks? A time of harvest. A, a great harvest of souls. That's where we are right now. 
in this part of the prophetic timeline. Go forward with the gospel because the next thing that's coming is the Feast of Trumpets. And what is that? The rapture of the church. And then sixth would be the Day of Atonement when the remnant of Israel will be saved. It talks about in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 and in Romans. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles when Christ's millennial reign will happen. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I, 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 I have seen that before, but just to study it again, it was absolutely incredible to me. Chapter 24 deals with more various laws about uh, oil and the showbread. And remember, God gave his commandments at different times and in small amounts. Hebrews tells us that. Uh, he spoke at summary times and in, uh, sundry times and in diverse manners. So don't be confused if chapter 24 seems out of place. It's not. Everything in the Bible is done decently and in order. Chapter 24 also talks about a story of blasphemy and the punishment of it. Another uh, severe reminder of the need for holiness and obeying God's law. Chapter 25 references the possession of land, uh, servants, and the year of Jubilee, where all possessions were to be returned to their original owner. All of this was to remind Israel that none of what they had was their own. They had much, but they possessed none of it. All of it was God's, and therefore, if God wanted them to do that with their possessions, that is what they needed to do. Chapter 26 is a beautiful chapter, and it describes the blessings of obedience and the curse of unfaithfulness to God's holy covenant. And it's interesting to read chapter 26 and see that God already seems to know that Israel won't keep their covenant with him. And yet he still promises restoration. Uh, the entire book of Leviticus highlights, think about this with me, it highlights the responsibility that man has to be clean and pure. But even when man fails to fulfill that responsibility, God brings his love and he brings his faithfulness to his covenant and he never fails. Chapter 27, the last chapter, seems out of place. At first glance, it seems that chapter 26 would be a more fitting ending to the book. But upon a study of the contents of chapter 27, we can see why it has been placed where it is. Chapter 1 through 26 all dealt with commands and obligations. Chapter 27 deals with voluntary vows made to the Lord. Now I know what you're thinking. Weren't the burnt offering and the meat offering and the peace offering, weren't those all voluntary free will offerings? Yes. But even though they were voluntary offerings, what they were to offer was determined by specific instructions from God. Vows were voluntary offerings determined by the giver. Vowing a vow to the Lord was basically going beyond what was required, to go the extra mile, to give above the minimum. And even though this was a beautiful gesture, this chapter gives warnings. Uh, it warns against vowing a vow to God lightly. They were not to vow to God and then not see it through. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 through 6 talks about this. It says it's better not to vow uh, at all than to vow and not pay. Uh, it says, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. It also warns against vowing something that is already God's. You can't say, God, I'm going to give this to you when it already belongs to him. Now, again, everything belongs to him. But here's what it talks about. There are three things that you could not vow. Uh, first of all, in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 27, you could not vow a firstborn. Uh, God had already told them, I have already claimed the firstborn. Uh, you can't vow that to me. That's already mine. In verse 28 and 29, anything that had already been vowed to God by somebody else, you can't say, oh yeah, I vow that too. No, no, that's not how it works. If it's already been devoted to God, you can't vow it again. And verse 30 through 33 says, you can't vow the tithe to me. Why? 
because the tithe is the Lord's. He says, you can't vow that to me. That is already mine. If you want to vow something above and beyond, that is your prerogative, but make sure that you follow through with it. And then we end in verse 34. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. Now, do you remember how the book began? In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. This book of Leviticus was to provide a way for sinful man to fellowship with the holy God, to be in his presence again. Look at how Numbers begins. Numbers 1, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of the congregation. God's way of atonement has worked. And his people are once again in his presence. But remember, that was only a part of his covenant that he gave to Abraham. Another part was that Abraham's family would settle in Canaan. Now, this would require a long journey between Mount Sinai and Canaan. It wouldn't be easy. What about the armies that they would face along the way? How many people are we even dealing with here? How are we going to get this group to move in the best way? Uh, how should we travel? Which tribe should take the lead? What should we do with the tabernacle? How do we get there in the first place? And the answers to all of these questions are what the next book of Numbers is all about. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.